millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. where we don't do the thinking for you. Today we're going to be talking about oil prices. You may have noticed driving around that you have a little bit more cash in your pocket recently than you did a couple of years ago because gas is so much cheaper. Or more likely you've just spent it on something else. Yeah, that's probably true, huh? An extra Xbox. Well, anyways, you have that extra consumer good, whatever that you can get now because oil prices are cheaper. We're going to be talking about why this is happening and why you're able to go out and spend a little extra on something that's not gas. Uh, And we're going to try to withhold any commentary on what should happen with oil prices. And we'll just try to get into the mechanics of what is going on. Like anything, it is ultimately a question of supply and demand, right? So, you know, I think one of the reasons that we wanted to talk about this is that I think there's a lot of confusion around what drives oil prices. And one of the reasons we know that one of the pieces of evidence we have there is that the president's approval rating is historically very closely tied to the price of oil. So when it goes down or the price of gasoline, so when it goes down, the president's approval rating goes up and vice versa. And it happens to be the case that the price of oil and price of gasoline are very closely linked uh, because there's only one process between them. But you know, as we talked about in the Iran thing, uh, people don't understand always how oil is bought. You know, they might think that the United States has a contract with Saudi Arabia and that's why we're friends with them or something. So it's actually just a big, crazy commodity market. And oil prices, therefore, are driven by the people, you know, how many people want to buy oil versus how much is being made. And it's not just the stuff that is being made or consumed right now. It's also the stuff that we're anticipating is going to be made or consumed in the future. Um, and so that's why we have stuff like the futures market and speculators. I think the the president's approval rating is is an interesting concept. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're trying to say here is that since there is some sort of a connection between the president's approval rating and the price of oil, that there is this perception among a good amount of people that the president is at least somewhat responsible for it. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. That he's able to exert some serious control over what's going on and therefore he must have you know, he must have some lever, he must have some policy that changes the price of oil. Right. Well, it's a complicated market. Uh, Well, well, really, any commodities market is a fairly complicated market. And, you know, before we dig into the issue of futures, it's probably worth explaining what futures are. So in the commodities market, a futures contract 
is essentially two parties entering into an obligation to buy or sell something in the future. So if I'm buying a futures contract at a predetermined what's called strike price, then I'm guaranteeing myself that I can buy oil at this price in the future, regardless of what happens to the price in the future. And likewise, if I enter into a futures contract as a seller, I am obligated to sell oil at that price at some point in the future, regardless of what happens to it. And are those, can you, I'm guessing you can just make a futures contract with whomever for whatever price y'all agree to. And is it the case that people then, do people actually just trade those, you know, they'll get a futures contract and then trade them around with each other for different prices before the contract is due or something? Yeah, you can trade futures contracts. Generally, they are more bilateral than, say, options contracts, which just means that um, there are generally more standardized options contracts that get sent through an exchange or some sort of clearinghouse. Can you tell me what makes an option different? Sure. So options are similar to futures in that you have a strike price and you're agreeing to uh, either well, buy or sell in the future, but you're not obligated to buy or sell. You're purchasing the right or option to buy or sell that commodity in the future. So if I have an options contract to buy oil at a certain strike price in the future, I don't actually need to buy that oil. If it's a futures contract, I do need to buy that oil in a nutshell. Gotcha. So futures contracts are used by finance and econ and uh, economics and different political types as ways to gauge expectations of future prices in different types of commodity markets. And this can range from oil to grain to gold to whatever. And frequently, the expectation of future price changes kind of just gets converted into what people call predictions, right? Which is uh, kind of makes sense because uh, in the future, people are essentially agreeing to buy commodities at predetermined prices. So a big portion of the market in the future is sort of already agreed on, but not all of it. So if you've ever heard of the term, a Bloomberg terminal from one of your friends that works in finance or, or banking or something like that, on one of these terminals, you can pull up a curve that shows the expectations of prices for these different commodities at different times in the future. And that's, that's kind of just called a forward curve. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons, I mean, one of the reasons I think of the futures market as a good predictor is that people are literally, or as a, as a good aggregate source of our predictions, is that people are literally putting their money where their mouth is, right? If you think that, you know, let's say oil is $50 a barrel, and you're buying a futures contract at 55, it's because you think that oil is going to rise above 55, and you will ultimately end up saving a bunch of money, and thereby making a bunch of money by having that futures contract. Right. If you're right, if you're right, that oil went up. But if you're wrong, it went down, you're going to lose money. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what's that's what's really interesting about these these speculators is that, you know, there's some stuff that's fairly easy to predict uh, about changes in supply and demand. You know, if you think that, you know, if you know assets are supposed to come online, you can probably bet that there will be new you know, assets like oil rigs and derricks mines. You can bet that the price will be going down as the supply increases, or at least rel price will be dropping relative to what it would be had that asset not come online. Um, and there's, so there's some, you know, obviously tons of things changing. And we'll talk about 
you know, that affects supply and demand. We'll talk about each of those. But when the when the aggregate prediction is good, it tends to be the case that oil prices change gradually. Because, for example, if future supply and demand is going to shift in such a way that the price would go up, so maybe higher demand or lower supply or both, if we know that's coming, we can st we'll start buying up now, and that will cause the you know that and that increased buying now um, actually causes the price to jump a little bit, uh, but it jumps less than it would you know it's less of a shock than it would be had that new supplier demand situation just hit us all at once and us not knowing anything. So we we get this like gradual curve of oil prices if we're predicting well, and if we predict poorly because something weird happens that we didn't anticipate, like a major international incident or uh, an asset or pipeline goes down, or the Strait of Hormuz gets blocked, or there's an economic crash or a war. Um, you know, if somehow we blow the prediction, then we see a shock, you know, a big move in the oil price because we didn't predict it. You know, we had thought it was going to be sticking around, maybe in this case, like 80 bucks, and it dropped to 30. Um, it's because we thought whatever we predicted was wrong. And that's the, the crux of what's happened recently, and we can talk in more detail about that. Yeah, you used a phrase a moment ago, Eric, assets coming online, and just for the sake of not getting too wonky, what exactly do you mean by that? Right. Uh, so, yeah, thanks. So an asset is like a, any, when we're, when we're talking about producing oil, an asset is a really big facility of, you know, that's either getting oil out of the ground or the sea or converting it into like gasoline or something like that. So for example... Any like an oil rig is an asset. An oil field with derricks is an asset. A refinery is an asset. A oil sands mine is an asset. Um, so all these things are things where like they basically have a number attached to them where we know like oh it's producing such and such thousand barrels per day of either crude oil or in the case of gas prices specifically a refinery that's producing gasoline as well. Both of these affect it. Although the crude oil price has a lot more to do with it. So a moment ago, you were describing people who attempt to anticipate the price of commodities, or in this case, specifically oil in the future. And there's a term that gets attached to this type of entity, and it's you know speculators. And, and I think you plan to talk a little bit more about that later, but it's worth mentioning that there are plenty of legitimate business reasons to enter into these future contracts. So just as an example, think about the airline industry an industry that's really very heavily dependent on oil as an input to the products that it can offer its customers. Now, a couple of years ago, when the price of oil was really very high, around $175 a barrel, if, if I'm remembering correctly, airlines were just getting crushed all over the place. Their margins were slim. It was very difficult for them to make a profit. And so they introduced a bunch of all these additional fees that they tacked on in order to try to make up for that. This wasn't the case with Southwest Airlines. And while they struggled a little bit, they weathered the storm much better than a lot of other airlines because before the price of oil had gone so high, Southwest entered into futures contracts at far lower prices than what the prevailing price for oil was in the market at that point. So they hedged, is what it's called, their commodities input price. Yeah, and I think they during that period, they gained a lot of market share because they were able to make some moves where everyone else was scraping for every penny. They had some bucks sitting around to be able to make some moves and expand, you know, expand operations, buy some new planes, stuff like that. 
right? So at a very high level, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking back again to terminology that I learned in a derivatives class many, many years ago, there are speculators, which are people who attempt to predict the price of a commodity for strictly financial gain, more like an investment. And then there are hedgers, who are people who depend on a commodity as an input to their business. So these these are two categories worth keeping in mind as we continue to talk about oil. Right. And ultimately, these guys are, what they're doing is they are shifting around supply and demand, right? So they're, you know, if you're buying an oil future, you're increasing demand now, um, which will bump the price up a little bit for your buy. And uh, if you're right about the price going up later, it will mean that it will mean that you've made some money that way. And so, you know, ultimately this, this story is about supply and demand. And, you know, as we talked about earlier, the fact that there was a price shock meant that something changed in the supply or the demand that we didn't anticipate. And like most good stories, there's not just one cause. There are a few things going on, uh, and we could talk about each of those. So looking at the big picture first, before we go down to specifics, I want to look at reserves. And what are reserves? Well, they are how much oil is in the ground. Um, so it's the case that factually, of course, the number of reserves or the amount of reserves, the number of barrels in the ground is going down. But there are like different ways to categorize reserves. And I think most people believe that oil is always going to be expensive in part because, oh, since the number of reserves are being depleted, there's just, that means less supply, right? And no, it's more complicated than that. Um, there are... Unknown reserves, known reserves, and proven reserves. And so unknown reserves are stuff that we just haven't found at all yet. So we just don't know it's there. And it turns out the world's a really big place, and finding reserves is hard. This isn't Star Trek, and we don't have, like, an oil scanner. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you sort of have to imagine, like, you know, you want to find some oil, what do you do? Well, it's not that different from the oil rush of the 18-somethings in Texas, where you go around sticking holes in the ground. Like you poke, you basically poke really big straws in the ground and see if something comes out. Um, you can try to use seismic, like sonar, seismic or sonar testers to like basically get vibrations back and get some ideas, something's there, but that's really hard to do. Um, and it only, get, it only really gets you started on the path of, oh, maybe we should stick some straws in the ground here. So then you find some oil, hooray. Um, you, some oil is really easy to get to. So in Saudi Arabia, you that straw that you stuck in the ground, you just need to attach a pump to it. You just start drawing it out because it's a big well. right? It's just a giant hole in the ground that's filled with oil. It's great. And this is why, by the way, Saudi Arabia can get oil at such a cheap cost of production relative to other countries, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Saudi Arabia just happens to be sitting on a giant, a huge number of fields of oil that all they are close to the surface. The oil is like very nice. Uh, it's always warm, so it's not viscous. So you really just have to stick a pipe in the ground and attach a pump to it and draw it out, and it's really cheap. And so those reserves are proven in the sense that it is known that we can get them out of the ground. Now there are also unproven reserves, um, and unproven reserves are oil that we're aware of, but it's really, really you know, we just don't know yet that we can get it out. So. You guys probably have heard of fracking, um, and that's shale oil that you pull out of the ground uh, via smashing up the shale and then sucking it all out and filtering out the, the rock. And it was the case that through the 90s, we knew this stuff was there. It just we, we just didn't know how to get to it. 
we didn't have the technology to get to it in a cost-effective way. So these were unproven reserves. Um, now, you may also remember in the 90s that oil was pretty cheap. Nobody really bothered. As oil got more expensive, we started doing the research to go after that shale oil, invented hydraulic fracking, and those reserves became proven. So if you look at one of our links, you'll see how proven reserves have changed over time in different countries. And it turns out that for most countries, they've been going up, not down. And so if anyone's telling you about peak oil, it's probably a very, very long way away. We have more reserves, more proven reserves than we've ever had. And it looks like there's going to be more in the future because um, there's a lot of unproven reserves that can also be converted. So the United States has gained a lot, obviously, from, from fracking. Uh, Canada has gained a lot from the tar sands. Venezuela discovered a lot offshore recently. Brazil discovered some stuff offshore recently. So proven reserves gone up a lot. So what that actually means is that um, for those speculators or for anyone that's thinking about the long-term price, there isn't this drive to go, oh my God, we're about to run out of oil, so now it's going to get really expensive. And that's just not happening as far as anyone's like economic horizon. Um, and the last place we're starting to potentially see, well, this last place we're starting to see unproven reserves pop up in spades here is the Arctic, because the ice cap's melting, and so people are able to explore a little more. They found some oil pretty deep down, but once it's wet rather than uh, you know solid up there, people will be able to get to it. And by people, I mean you know the United States, Canada, Russia are the guys thinking about it because they've got some territorial claims up that direction. Yeah, this is a really interesting place in the world to keep your eye on. Russia really has a very heavily oil-dependent economy, and they're a lot closer to the Arctic than we are. So Russia's going to start playing a greater role in the Arctic. And if you're the U.S. or Canada, this is something that you're aware of. And if you want to attempt to challenge Russia's claim, then you're going to see American naval forces begin to focus more on the Arctic and move more more of our fleet there. And this is, by the way, something that we're doing. And this is interesting because, you know, the Navy is already 100% on board with this framework uh, of climate change. They recognize it's happening and they're using that as an input to their Arctic strategy because they know the ice caps are going to be melting. They know Russia is going to be attempting to expand their geopolitical influence into that area in order to take control of the resources there. And I think this is one reason why, especially given current relationships, uh, the current relation between the U.S. and Russia, the Arctic is going to become an increasingly contested, uh, both economically and potentially military, uh, militarily, area. Uh, and I think this will probably end up resulting in, uh, ho hopefully not, but probably more tension between uh, these two countries. So keep an eye out for the Arctic in the next couple of years. I think it's, uh, I'll sign myself up for a loose prediction saying that this is going to be an area that receives increasing focus as Russia attempts to uh, gain more access to the, to the oil in that region. Yeah, so when in three to five years, you're hearing much more about the Arctic and Russia and American naval activity up there, just remember, you heard it from Xander first on Reconsider <laughs> back, in, back in the days of 2016, which, you know, and uh, what's so cool about all this, or what's so interesting rather about all this is that the implications of 
you know, oil is actually a big deal, you know. And so when I in the Iran episode said, bah, but, you know, about people thinking that we're allied with Saudi Arabia because of the oil. I mean, oil does inform geopolitical strategy. There's no doubt about it, just often not in the ways that we think. And this is just such a great example of how stuff like global warming and oil and the Navy come together to, you know, these three things that are somewhat unrelated, except that burning oil produces global warming. But it's almost the opposite now, right? Like global warming is causing us to have access to this new oil that is setting up a potential military conflict in a place that we have, you know, people my age, I'm 28, grew up never just thinking about, right? Because it was just a, it was a geopolitical dead zone. It was the Arctic. It was a piece of ice. Anyway, it's just really cool that, that so much is changing like that. So we have all these places, including the Arctic, where we're getting more reserves, more proven reserves in the bank that we can get access to. So this means that our future supply is looking pretty secure for the next like 20 to 50 years or more. Um, and again, that's even not including the unproven reserves that we haven't figured out yet or the unknown reserves that we haven't discovered at all. So um, what that means is that, you know, so if anyone's asking, hey, why aren't oil prices just being pushed up and up and up? The reason is because we've got a pretty steady supply going forward. And so what about demand? You know, since oil prices have been dropping, it means that either supply has gone up or demand has dropped or both. And in this case, uh, it it is the case that both has happened. So if we're looking at demand, we know that demand for oil has dropped relative to, actually it's dropped absolutely, but in particular, it has dropped relative to what people were expecting, right? And so people bought oil futures and options based on the expectation that there would be a certain demand. There has been a global slowdown, economic slowdown, which means that oil consumption has dropped some. But most importantly, um, uh, a few things a few things have happened. Some of them were more predictable, some of them were less. So one of them was that in the mid-2000s, European and American... Uh, cars have become much more fuel efficient in part due to, to, you know, just the technologies there in part due to government policy demanding it. And so oil consumption has actually dropped in both the European Union and the United States, uh, mm. which most people don't know. But since the mid 2000s, it's actually started ticking down a little bit. Mm. Um, there's also just fewer cars per person. People are living in cities more. So the urbanization means that you just travel less distance and you're taking mass transit more or walking. Uh, so yeah, we're actually using using less now eric what what about in the what about in the developing world what, what are trends there oh yes those are definitely those are definitely going up and so the big factors in the developing world are china and india because most of the developing world is so is kind of so far behind the um you know so you have the developed world which uses by far the most oil and the amount that they're using is dropping a little bit you have the like very impoverished developing world like Sub-Saharan Africa that's using so little oil that they barely show up. The guys in the middle are the ones who are really interesting, India and China, and their demand has been increasing really, really, really fast over the past 20 years. You know, obviously the population's growing, but in particular, there is an emerging middle class that is buying cars and they're starting to drive places. And also, I mean, it just powers, you know, oil powers a lot of different parts mm -hmm. of an economy. Um, and, you know, and, and people are buying more goods, so they're transporting them around. And so all this stuff, you know, all this new activities going on that requires oil. Um, and for them, it's not that their demand has dropped recently, but it has gone up a lot less slowly than people thought. A lot less quickly? 
sorry, a lot less quickly. Yeah. yeah. It has gone up a lot less quickly than people thought. And if you remember from earlier, we said that, look, shocks only happen when we get the prediction wrong. This was one of those predictions that we got wrong. And there's a, there's the biggest one is China. This was the surprise. And so China was supposed to have a whole lot more demand, but its economy is just a mess. It's got a ton of bad debt. Um, its debt to GDP ratio, its total debt to GDP ratio is about 300%. So uh, I think it's... Its GDP is something like five trillion per year, which means that it's sitting on about fifteen trillion in debt, and most of that's actually corporate. And there's a lot of it's bad debt. I think something like forty. Don't hold me to the numbers, but I think something like forty percent of their debt is bad debt, which means that it's probably not going to get paid back. Hmm. And so everyone's realized that these growth numbers just can't sustain, uh, and its growth projection rates are just being adjusted down all the time. And when you're not growing, you're you know, if your economy is growing at a slower rate, then it means that the amount of oil that you were, that people anticipated you'd be using going forward is dropping from what they thought it was. It's interesting to almost watch history repeating itself, even recent history a little bit, because if you've been following the news, you've heard about this bad debt that China has incurred. And if you dig in and try to understand why that happened, you'll find that a lot of it has been the result of some financial shenanigans, which is what we saw here in the U.S. in you know, 2005 to 2008. Now, the types of financial products are a little different, and this is interesting. One source of the overextension of credit in China is this product called uh, wealth management products. Let's say like suspiciously generic name. Isn't it? I think the idea is there is a lot more participation in investment markets in China among consumers, basically people like you and me as opposed to you know big companies. So that's, that's kind of what they're tailoring this concept to, people who are looking for higher rates of return. So how do they get this higher rate of return? Well, in a banking system, you have what's called a reserve ratio, and this means that you're required to hold back a certain percent of the capital or dollars deposited in your bank for protection so that if someone call, comes and wants to pull their money out, you have some there. And this is um, recorded on the financial statements of a company. Now, in China, what they started doing was banks would create a subsidiary called a trust and would funnel the money through this trust. And if the trust issues these wealth management products, there is essentially no capital reserve ratio required. So they can hold back 0% of the money deposited. And the money, uh, the market got flooded with capital as a result of this because there was an overextension of credit. In China, this fueled this real estate boom. There are entire cities that just got built up with no one living there. Yeah, there are ghost cities, which Crazy. is just nuts. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's in one form or another financial shenanigans, uh, just of a slightly different type than what we saw in the U.S. Yeah, and China's also just running into some of the generic problems of a state-run economy, right? I remember uh, when Liz Warren was running here in Massachusetts against uh, Scott Brown for Senate, she pointed out that China spends 9% of its GDP on infrastructure and the U.S. spends 2 And I thought, man, 9%, that's a lot. And I did a little bit of research and it turns out that China is just, in addition to building cities in which no one lives, it's building a lot of highways to nowhere. Hmm. Uh, and just, I mean, it's, it's pouring a ton of money into a ton of cash into its economy right now, building a lot of stuff of dubious value, um, by the government 
in order to try to prop up its economy because uh, it's it's on the rails right now. It's in a really weird place. And you know, it's very odd to look at a country that has six to eight percent GDP growth and be like, man, you guys are in trouble. Um, but it's, you know, it's you, you know, if the government can have, you know, can pay everyone a bunch of money to dig holes and fill them back in again and you'll have a GDP, but you won't have gotten anything done. And so that's, you know, that's one of the weaknesses of it as a, as a measure. So as we, that basically the deeper you look into China, the weirder it gets. And there are a number of reasons people didn't know this. Some of it was, I mean, some of it's just laziness, but there's an incentive to not be lazy. And so, you know, what happened to the people who are doing the good research? Well, some of it's that China hides, uh, you know, the Chinese government hides a lot of what's going on. It does its own reporting. It doesn't have a lot of independent third party guys, uh, verifying it, um, and there were a few other indicators that were looking pretty good, uh, mostly like importation of copper and aluminum by China from countries like Australia that have more open reporting. Um, and that dropped suddenly. And so those were looking good. And then suddenly they stopped import while well, they dropped their importations by a lot. Uh, and that was a really bad sign that things were starting to slow down. You know, I read an interesting article in The Economy while we're, well, uh, sorry, interesting article in The Economist. And while we're talking about debt in China, it's, it's worth mentioning. It was about peer-to-peer -peer lending. So at, there, there are these peer-to-peer -peer crowdfunding places like Indiegogo coming up. There's also peer-to-peer -peer lending, places like Lending Club, where you can go and put together a group of investors who loan money to someone who needs it instead of going to a bank. And in China, this has become really popular, but because of the lack of regulation or the lack of enforcement of regulation a lot of these peer-to-peer -peer lending companies have essentially become pyramid schemes and they're paying off the investors with new money coming in. And you're beginning to see the failure of a lot of these institutions. And we're talking big dollar amounts, like, you know, billions of dollars. There's like thousands of peer-to-peer -peer lending institutions in China. It kind of boggled my mind. It seems to be a lot more prevalent there than it is here. Man. At the risk of going way off track, talking about China, sure. which I've now, I'm now earmarking in my brain as another, th we should just maybe just have a podcast that goes, okay, China, what the heck is going on? The podcast. Uh, <laughs> we, we could probably do that. But you know, all this comes down to, for oil prices, it means this. China's demand dropped, or at least uh, the, it, its demand grew a lot more slowly than we had anticipated it was going to grow because its economy is kind of built on a house of cards um, and it's probably going to start coming down. So basically demand relative to prediction dropped. Uh, and so that's going to drive the. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST. Hold up. 
Price down. But then there's supply. And this is where the story starts to get really big. So we've actually talked about the smallest impact stuff first. And now we're going to the stuff that's really started to make a difference. Um, or the biggest difference. So some stuff that was predictable as far as supply is the United States increasing its output in Canada. So the United States has shale oil production uh, with fracking. Canada has the tar sands where they basically mine it with shovels and then process it. They're, they're expensive and they've only been able to come online thanks to expensive oil, but they were able to, you know, they brought them online and that increased the supply, but this stuff was fairly predictable. So it, it wasn't going to drive a shock. Uh, but if we look at the, the big picture, over the past three years, oil production in the world has jumped from 73 to 97 million barrels wow. per day. That's so huge. That's, yeah, it's it's 33% increase, which is, I mean, it's just mind boggling. That hasn't happened in a really, really long time. So we know that some of that is United States and Canada. And one of the reasons we know that is, I mean, we could just look at the numbers, but there's some like anecdotes that are really interesting here that just show you the, the magnitude of what's going on here. And the United States and Canada have obviously oil pipelines and terminals. So the U.S. has hydrocarbon terminals for boats for our giant ships that carry hydrocarbons, essentially oil, at ports. A lot of them are in Texas. And it, they used to be import terminals. Uh, East Coast has them, Florida has them, LA has them, uh, but they used to be import terminals. So we used to like buy a lot of oil from the Middle East or Venezuela, and we still do buy some. And we would buy that oil and it would come in uh, and we'd import it from those terminals. The United States has produced or is producing so many hydrocarbons that it has switched many of those terminals from being input or uh, import to export terminals. So we're now instead of, you know, we're just, we've said this port no longer takes in oil. It ships out oil. We're now a net oil exporter, or sorry, a net hydrocarbon exporter. So that includes natural gas uh, because we get a ton of natural right. gas from fracking as well. Yeah. Canada also had a oil pipeline that used to be a crude and diesel pipeline going from east to west. So from St. John, New Brunswick, which is, the refinery there, huge Northeast refinery. It used to take take on crude oil from the Middle East and it would process it and turn it into diesel and ship it west. Uh, and now what's happening is they've turned that entire pipe around. Um, so basically reversed all the pumps on that pipe so that they can pump more oil from the like Bakken shale and uh, Manitoba, Alberta, oil sands regions ship that east to the refinery. And so imports have dropped, exports have increased for both of these countries. Tons of new production. Hmm. Yeah. But again, this was somewhat predictable. It was predictable but dramatic. Here's the really unpredictable part. It was the Middle East. And there's a lot of reasons we got this prediction wrong. But basically what happened is Middle East oil production went up by a lot and we thought it was not going to. So there were some very dour predictions about ongoing oil supply. Essentially, if there was, uh, you know, if there's going to be a whole lot of political instability, interstate war, it would probably interrupt the oil supply by a lot. And, you know, like, so two years ago, we were talking about potentially war with Iran. You know, we were talking about potentially bombing Iran. They were threatening to block the Strait of Hormuz, which would have been a very realistic thing. We'd have to 
you know, if they blocked it and blocked all the oil flowing through that, and there's a ton, you know, you'd have to make the choice of, you know, do we wait them out? Do we start shooting? It would have gotten ugly no matter what. Uh, and that would have driven the price up because, you know, less supplies flowing out. I mean, two years ago, it looked like ISIS might just take over Iraq. Hmm. Scary and, thought. Yeah. And, you know, Iraq's still a mess, but like it, it, they were they were knocking on the doors of Baghdad. They're at the gates. And then Iran's sanctions got lifted just a few months ago. So all this stuff that we thought, you know, we thought Iran's not going to be producing much. Iraq might not produce anything. Strait of Hormuz might get blocked. We, so we thought all this supply was either going to be stuck low or drop. And instead, we've got increased supply because Iran, uh, with the sanctions deal, is able to produce a lot more oil. Um, they're planning on, I mean, they, they literally have rusted assets, you know, like oil derricks and such that have rusted during the sanctions that they want to get back online. Um, the Kurds in Iraq have finally, finally made a deal with the government about how to get oil flowing there. So Middle Eastern oil actually picked up a lot. Very quickly, very suddenly, very hard to predict. Uh, and that has driven the price up or down a lot. Yeah, it's interesting. So last week, or well, the prior episode, we talked about the Iran nuclear deal and tangentially Iranian geopolitics. And something that has always been a risk in the Middle East is how oil is exported from Saudi Arabia, which is through the Persian Gulf. And at one point, there's a very, very narrow pass called the Strait of Hormuz. And while Iran remained hostile, there's always the risk that they could just block the strait. And there's no pipeline, so there would essentially be no other way to get oil out from Saudi Arabia. And there's lots of geopolitical you know, consequences to that. But it's, it's just an interesting thought, opening back up to Iran, being able to minimize this particular risk. Uh, I mean, also given that Iran wants to increase from 1.1 to 2.5 million barrels per day, which is, I think, their pre-sanction level, you know, they've got more on the line as well. And if they try to block the Strait of Hormuz, well, you know, there's going to be other countries there with boats as well. There'd be a standoff, you know, if Iraq can't get, or if Saudi Arabia can't get their ships out, then Iran won't be able to either. Everything will be bottled up there. So there's just going to be a lot more money, a lot more like personal vested interest for Iran to keep that thing flowing, which is actually possibly going to lead to greater international stability, which would be really interesting. And so for all of these things that have happened geopolitically in the Middle East, it's very hard to predict. Uh, so we had reasonable predictions that were pretty dour, that looked like production was going to be low. And then suddenly a whole bunch of stuff happened where we said, oh, it's going to be a lot higher than we thought. Price goes down. Now, some of you who, you know, some of you listening to this probably either like read our stuff a lot or you read the news a lot. And you're wondering, okay, guys, you've basically not mentioned Saudi Arabia and OPEC in over half an hour. What the heck? <laughs> What's wrong with you? And uh, nothing is wrong with us. We're just saving the best for last uh, because OPEC is the big story on why there's such a price shock and why it, it might be hard to fix or change in the future, fix from the producer's perspective. Um so for, the, for those that don't know, OPEC is the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Uh, it has, it used to, <laughs> spoiler alert, uh, have <laughs> a whole lot of power over the price of oil um, because it's a cartel, literally a cartel of countries like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Iraq, Iran, 13 total, doesn't include Russia, Canada, and the United States. 
So together they produce about 40% of the world's oil and they have 73% of the world's proven reserves. And that number used to be, both of those numbers used to be a lot higher. So they're a, I mean, they are a big deal. And they're, their purpose as a cartel was to keep prices up because they would agree to limit how much oil they produced. I mean, think back when they were over 50% of the world's oil production. If they said, yeah, we're going to decrease our production by a little bit, the price would spike. And so what it would mean is it prevented them from getting into a price war, driving the price of oil down, and they were able to keep their profits really, really high. And it's really important for them, actually, uh, because these countries' national budgets – they're like government budgets and all the social programs they have depend almost entirely on really strong oil revenues. Yeah, these economies are entirely oil dependent. They don't have diversified uh, industries like in the West. You know, if you've ever heard of the word collusion, it's usually in the context of like a trust case, like how Teddy Roosevelt in the early 20th century busted all the trusts. And the reason for that is collusion is super illegal in the U.S. But just for a point of reference, that's exactly what OPEC is. It is a group of people who collude to influence global oil prices. Well, not people, group of countries. Yeah. And yeah, so it's it's and that's why, you know, if you remember the 1970s, remember, uh, I guess some of you do. Sorry. I just, you know, I wasn't around then. But um, if you've heard about, read about or were around for the 1970s oil crisis, you know, what happened was OPEC didn't raise production rates for many years. And there, as demand for oil grew, there there was a growing oil shortage, very, very high prices, lines at the gas station, a little bit of riding. I mean, this is where, you know, the movie Mad Max was originally not about thermonuclear war or global warming. It was about running out of oil, like having wars for guzzoline. Really? I had no idea. That's super interesting. Yeah. Mad Max was about running out of oil. And, um, hmm. Yeah, there was also, I mean, it, it has transformed over time to also be that, like, that oceans dried up or something. But the original one was just, like, there was an oil war. Um, and because the world was so dependent on oil as we ran out, uh, there was also a war for other resources because you just couldn't get your hands on them because you couldn't move them. Hmm. Um, and so, like, in the 1970s, it was that bad uh, that we were, like, making, you know, now crazy famous movies about running out of oil. Hmm. And, you know, and so it used to be used to be that powerful. Um, but its power has dropped since then, in part because it's it doesn't control as much of the world's oil production anymore. But also, more importantly, it has an Achilles heel. And its Achilles heel is that it has no enforcement mechanism for its member countries. So if one of the members of the cartel decides to not play by the rules, there's no way to keep them in line, right? Right. I mean, what are you going to do? Invade them? Yeah. Um, yeah. And they don't have, you know, they don't have a treaty that, you know, forces them to pay each other or anything like that. And, you know, even if they did, if you don't pay up, what are they going to do? Stop, you know, there's just not there's not much you can do about it. So what has happened recently and why is the lack of an enforcement protocol relevant to this discussion? Right. Well, as the United States and Canada cranked up their oil production because the price of oil was so high, Saudi Arabia lost a lot of market share for their oil exports, which is, again, essentially how the entire country maintains stability and how the the monarchy stays in power, is by being able to provide a lot of social services uh, through oil wealth. Saudi Arabia saw this happening and decided that they wanted to regain their market share, and they did this by increasing their supply of oil to the market. They They essentially 
wanted to sabotage the, well, maybe sabotage isn't the right word, word, but undercut the oil production processes going on in the U.S. They wanted to drive the price of oil down by increasing supply and drive fracking and tar sands, tar sands operations out of, uh, out of business. So Saudi Arabia, by doing this, wanted to set a precedent that would discourage future investment in tar sands or shale areas uh, by saying, look, you can invest in all this capital and start fracking. You can start extracting oil from tar sands. But if you do that, we're just going to undercut you, drive you out of business, and then we'll raise the price of oil again. Yeah. And, and there's a real risk of it because, the you know, for example, in the tar sands, the the investment to get oil out just to get to your first barrel of oil is massive because you've got to dig underground because what you're literally doing is you're you've got giant, the biggest shovels in the world dumping uh oily sandy crap into the biggest trucks in the world and then they have to drive over to a huge plant that has like a hopper and it chews it up just like as if it's like copper ore and then you have to get really really hot water which is expensive um to blast it you know, to blast into the oil in the sand, to separate the oil in the sand. And then the oil is this stuff called bitumen, which is thick and gross. And so you have to upgrade it. I mean, it's just so much stuff that you have to do to turn oil sand or tar sand into crude oil. And so it requires massive investment. And so if you were able to break these companies and shut them down and get them mothballing, I mean, it would be, it would be a serious blow to the, you know, the viability of of these investments going forward until you did start getting close to peak oil, you know, until you couldn't just arbitrarily produce as much oil as you wanted anymore. So there's a risk of that. And, you know, what kind of prices do you need to see for that to start happening? Well, for shale, there's just such a, for the fracking guys, there's such a huge range of how much it costs to get to fracking stuff. So some of it's under $30, some of it's over 70 with oil sands, it tends to be 30 to 35 bucks a barrel. It used to be much higher. It used to be as high as 60. Hmm. Uh, but they've just, you know, it's, there's improved technology. Um, there's improved, you know, they've, they've, they've like made a lot of changes over the past 40 years. And it has been 40 years that they've been working on this uh, to improve the cost effectiveness of oil sand stuff. So anyway, Saudi, Saudi went for it. They tanked the price of oil and, it was, you know, it got down there such that it was the case that some of these shale operations shut down um, and some of the oil sands operations were losing money. But it became a war of attrition. So, you know, Saudi had, you know, it has all these social programs uh, and it's currently burning through cash reserves really fast because it's spending money faster than it's getting it in because the price of oil is so cheap. And they've only got a couple of years left until they just run out. And it's true that, you know, a lot of North American investors have taken a blow on their returns. And, you know, as we said, some of the new ass or some of the some of the uh, shale operations have shut down. Um, some of the mines and derricks that were under construction got mothballed. Right. So they just got they just got stopped. But there's a lot of assets that have already been operating and they're still operating either because they're like barely making money or they're not losing too much money. And the reason to keep going if you're not losing too much money is if you think that the price of oil is going to come back up and you get profitable again, it's actually very expensive to shut down and then restart a giant operation like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so the question that is, is just what's going to be the thing, and anyway, it's a prediction, but what's going to be the thing that loses me the least money? Is it just keep you know, pumping oil at a lower rate um, or is it 
shut it down entirely. And for a lot of them, it's just keep pumping oil. So what happened, and the, the other thing about shale fracking is that it's those th some of those things can get mothballed more easily um, because while oil sands is really, really hard and asset heavy or capital heavy, you need giant trucks, giant shovels, and like multiple mega processing facilities. With shale, that's largely speaking not the case. You need a few small assets. It's really cheap. You can throw them up, you know, really fast and tear them down really fast, or just move them around. So, so it's um, so for them, they can mothball stuff. They can shut down and then say, okay, we'll come back when it's profitable again. Um, and so it's really hard to actually break the shale industry uh, because it's just there's so little money required to get moving on it that that yeah they'll shut down, but then they'll they'll pop right back up like a gopher. So Saudi Arabia is playing kind of a dangerous game then, right? Because if they run out of their reserves, if they run out of capital by trying to undercut the market, what happens? You have this big society that's quite oppressed, as we've talked about on a prior episode, that is at least in part kept in line by all these social services provided by oil money. So what happens when they run out of oil money? They'd rather not find out. Exactly. And we'd probably rather fi not find out either because it's true. An, an unstable Saudi Arabia in the Middle East, not such a great, not such a great thing. And that kind of begs the question, okay, well, how does Iran play into all of this? You know, they just concluded the nuclear deal. Uh, some sanctions have been lifted. Iran wants to start exporting oil to Europe again, which it was doing before the 2012 sanctions rolled on. Uh, but how do, how does Iran turn a profit if oil prices are so low. Well, the cost of oil production for Iran is also very low, but they kind of run into the same situation where it still costs money, so they're not going to be, you know, pulling in a huge profit if they start exporting this. So how do they get capital flowing back into their economy? So it's kind of a Well, and they also don't have a lot of cash to blow on it right now. Exactly. On the on the investment on the upfront investment. It's something like a trillion dollars in infrastructure investment required to get Iran's oil industry back uh, up to snuff. Which is m more than its GDP, I think. That sounds right. More than its annual GDP, yeah. Yeah. So it's Iran has a careful balancing act to, to manage as they try to roll back into the global oil market. One interesting thing that I've heard, or one interesting way that they've considered getting around this is by barter, which is kind of strange. You don't think about barter unless you're talking about ancient Sumeria in history class, right? Or hippies. <laughs> That's well, true. Or hippies. They're like really into barter. It's true. Yeah. And and the idea here is, you know, if they increase the supply of oil by beginning to export more, Iran risks driving the price of oil down even more and slimming their margins even further. So one idea that's been floated is, well, we need investment in our oil infrastructure and other countries need oil. So why don't we just enter into these barter arrangements where someone builds up our infrastructure for us and we trade oil for that without actually exchanging currency and injecting the global oil market with additional supply. I don't actually know where that stands right now, but it's interesting huh. that that's being discussed in a modern global economy as a solution to something like this. Yeah, I always, man, whenever someone says, you know, what's the solution to my problem is like taking currency out of it and just bartering, you know, goods for goods at every times, every time I hear that, 
I don't know. I don't know why. You know, I can't tell you exactly why it's a terrible idea, but my brain is definitely going like, like don't do that. <laughs> it's gonna. It's gonna. Someone's gonna get hosed by this, and it's either gonna be the investors or it's gonna be Iran. Now, I, I mean, if it's something, if investors are afraid of it, you know, if, I mean, they can figure it out, right? They're smarter than I am. They they get paid to study this stuff. Mm-hmm. I do this for fun. Mm-hmm. You know, if investors are worried about it, they're just not gonna take the deal. And if Iran is hosing itself, well. Uh, you know, then you'll have a bunch of, you know, if you have people kind of knocking down the gates to get in on this deal, it means that it's too sweet a deal. And if you have nobody showing up, it means that it's a, you know, that it's something that would over benefit Iran. Cause basically it's, it's going away from cash means that someone is going to, you know, it's going to be distorted either in one person's favor or one party's favor or another party's favor. Right. And, and what, and the idea that, well, the idea that like you're not putting that oil into the global market, anyway is i mean it's obviously it is going in there now i'm sure iran's aware of that but they just don't have to worry about the effect it has on the global market because what happens is if you have companies like you know if you have ExxonMobil or conoco phillips getting these bilateral agreements with iran it just means that they're not buying their oil from anyone else you know like Sinook or saudi arabia or something and so the price will drop more and and you know i think in particular after the deal with iran went through the sanctions deal with iran went through Saudi Arabia went, oh, crap. Oh, boy, this is going to get even worse. Um, And so what they want to do is they want to reduce their oil production, but not unilaterally. They want everyone else to get on board, too. Because, of course, that's how, you know, that's if you're the only one decreasing your oil production, everyone else benefits more than you do because they're producing the same amount now at a better price. But Saudi Arabia already screwed the pooch and basically went against OPEC, right? Yeah, exactly. And so what they're doing is that, I mean, they're they're scrambling around right now. They've got Russia to get to a production agreement with them. And the, I think they're hoping that, like, by being the guys that get other countries like Russia, which is a huge producer on board, that OPEC will go, OK, fine. You know, you were bad, but we'll agree with you and we'll reduce our, you know, we'll reduce our production. Iran is going, no, we're going to go back to pre-sanction level production it's uh, you're not gonna no we're not gonna reduce further our production and so you know I all the analysts I've read think that this this darn deal is dead on arrival um, or dead before arrival so it looks like right now there isn't a short-term way to figure out how to get an agreement to reduce oil production um, Saudi Arabia may end up doing it unilaterally but at this point there's a they may have a major cat out of the bag problem you know, just due to lack of trust, like you said, the lack of trust that's left because Saudi Arabia screwed these guys over already. I mean, just, they may be, they may not be able to like get a really functional OPEC again. If that's true, and I don't know if it is, um, cause I'm sure you're going to have some people working really hard cause it's in their interests in OPEC's interest to get OPEC working again. So you have people working really hard to do it, but if they can't cheap oil is here to stay for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And if they can, it will be back to expensable. And, you know, as yes, they only control 40% of it, but that 40% makes a big difference. Yeah, because again, we want some from 73 to 97 million barrels per day. And if they're able to drop that, I mean, even by, you know, even down to 90, 90 it's just, you know, you'll have really, really expensive oil because you'll have more demand than supply again. 
I think as we draw to the end of this episode, uh, I don't know if we've actually explicitly mentioned this yet, but we try to post all of our, or at least many of the sources that we use, that we read about before creating mm-hmm. these episodes, online on our website, somethingtoconsidermovement.com slash reconsider, and also in the iTunes description if you're downloading the podcast there. So, yeah. you know, this was... Uh, uh, a relatively wonky episode talking about the economics of oil prices. So there's lots of sources that we're going to post if you're interested in learning a little bit more, digging into the details, or if we didn't get deep enough on one of the issues that you're most interested in, those are available for reading and uh, feel free to check them out at at your leisure. Yeah. And if you, I mean, if we haven't talked about stuff that you wanted to hear about, or you've got follow-up questions that we can cover in another podcast, we'd love to hear what you guys want to hear about because there's a whole bunch of you now and uh you know it's way beyond just you know it's way beyond just people that we've we've had contact with before so all you listeners that haven't gotten in contact with us yet feel free to reach out you can uh you you can now follow us on twitter or or tweet at us it's at reconsider pod on facebook we are also reconsider pod and you can go to the website uh somebody consider movement.com slash reconsider you can leave a comment there on the you can leave a comment at that website at each post. We're really responsive to the stuff, um, and it will, yeah, it'll help us make some episodes that you guys are really excited about. So we'd love to hear it. Great. Well, uh, I think we, we've covered a lot of interesting ground here, from speculators and hedging to oil geopolitics in the Middle East and America shale and tar sands, and we hope it's been interesting. And hippies. And, and hippies. Briefly. Briefly. Uh, we hope it's been informative for you. Yeah, so my key takeaway for this, the reason I was really excited about talking about this was, again, at the beginning we said, hey, you know, people think, people I think have a lot of, there's a lot of uh, uh, myth or kind of folklore around how oil prices are covered. You know, it's you know, it's speculators, it's corporations, it's the president, it's, you know, whatever. In the detail, there's a whole lot of different things going on. Uh, but in the most abstract, in the most abstract perspective, there's only a few things going on. Again, there's really there's supply and demand, and what we think those are going to look like in the future. And so, what I want you to take away from this is that as you see commodity prices changing, so this applies to oil, this applies to other commodities like gold. I mean, even currency prices relative to each other and stuff like that. Just remember that there are these that these prices are shifting in reaction to some like real. Like, like a reality on the ground, right? To new production, to new new demand, to uh, interruptions in supply, um, or at least the predictions that those are or aren't going to happen. Um, and I think that that perspective, you know, you may not know exactly what those were until you read the news, but that perspective of, oh, the price of blah changed, something interesting must have happened to cause it. And uh, I think it's going to like put you in a much, like you'll be much more in touch with, uh, the world around you, you'll have a much more like interesting, intimate experience with, you know, with the economy around you as it changes. And I think that's, that's really empowering both as, you know, both just as a person interacting the economy, but also as a citizen. Um, I think it's really important to understand this stuff rather than let myth drive our decision-making as a people. Totally. So this has been another episode of Reconsider. Uh, remember, don't let the pundits think for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. This is Eric signing off. Looking forward to the next one, guys.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.